Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and this is the return of Eric Alterman, nation columnist, author of many books, and teaching a course now about Jewish thought, and I wanted to hear about it, and uh, it seemed to me when, that it uh, relates to the kind of things I try to talk about on this thing. So what's, what are you teaching? Well, I'm teaching this class called Modern Jewish Thought, and uh, it, it begins from the presupposition that um, Judaism was a sort of closed system for a thousand or so years, I mean, more than that, actually, but a long time. And then in the Enlightenment, and it came slowly to uh, Jewish thinkers, it was something called the Haskalah, which is the Hebrew term for Jewish Enlightenment. Let me just stop for a minute. When you say it was a closed system, what, what does that mean? Well, in the, in the pre-modern world, everybody lived in sort of communities that were ruled internally. They, were, um, they, they, didn't, they weren't necessarily citizens of countries. They were citizens of particular communities, and the Jews... It's never clear if Jews were a religious community or a people, a national community, but they were always separated from the other citizens of wherever they happened to be. And then a um, couple things happened. One is you had the beginning of the Enlightenment, which actually, in my view, began with a Jew, Boris Spinoza, in uh, Holland, who said, uh, he no longer wanted to be part of the Jewish community. Well, no, he said that he no longer, uh, he wasn't going to live according to the laws of the Jewish community. He was going to live according to the laws of nature as he understood them. Uh, his God was nature, and he was uh, ex excommunicated from the Jewish community of his, uh, his local Jewish community. He's the first Jew, well, maybe not the first, but he was excommunicated for his beliefs. And many historians date the, the origin of the Enlightenment to Spinoza's original writings, the origins of the entire Enlightenment. Um, and so, uh, so you had, uh, first of all, you had nationalist revolutions in uh, all across Europe, beginning with the French Revolution. And then you had the intellectual revolution of the Enlightenment, and this opened up these Jewish communities, which had been ruled by the rabbis, uh, uh, the local rabbis, to new thoughts and new opportunities. And the course I'm teaching is about the clash between the old habits of thinking of Jews historically and the new ideas that they were, on the one hand, experiencing, and on the other hand, um, bringing into being themselves, because a lot of the great thinkers, I would say, uh, 
a significant proportion of the great thinkers of the 20th century were Jews who were applying traditional modes of Jewish argumentation and thought to the new ideas that were floating around by virtue of the Enlightenment and the, and the new organization of peoples. Could you give some examples? Well, the, the most obvious examples, the ones that everybody uses, are Freud, Marx, and Einstein, who upset the entire, revolutionized the way people of the, of the 20th, 19th and 20th century thought about almost everything. And they were all Jews who were, um, who were, who were, whose families had lost contact with traditional Judaism. They were all born into families who uh, had once been very Jewish, but by their generation, they were sort of lost. And yet they had all these Jewish habits and Jewish modes of learning and they applied them to the world and came up with their revolutionary theories. Freud with psychology, Marx with economics, and Einstein with science. And you think they're distinctively different than non-Jewish people in the same professions around the same time in a way that you could articulate? Well, I hold a lot with a, a thinker named Isaac Deutscher, who was a Marxist historian who wrote an essay. This essay didn't come out until 1968, but it's called The Non-Jewish Jew. And it's about thinkers like this. Kafka would be another very good example of someone like this. And, um, and Isaac Deutscher said that he defined the non-Jewish Jew as someone who was twice alienated, alienated from their surroundings and their nationhood because of being Jewish, but also alienated from Judaism because they no longer could hold to the ancient teachings. And the fact of being twice alienated allowed them to see things that other people in their society couldn't see. And that allowed, that, that, allowed, that is what, that is the fertilizer that created these Jewish minds that became revolutionary thinkers in whatever field they happened to be. As you know, I, I didn't study uh, Jewish history or Jewish religion growing up, but 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 some of it seeped in uh, through my parents and through whatever little reading they, they did to try to connect me with the tradition. And to me, one of the main concepts that made somebody Jewish was this the idea of no idol worship. That's, you know, they were always being told by kings or pharaohs to worship uh, them and and they would not because they they wouldn't there was nothing between them and God that no, no idol worship and yet it seems like the power of rabbis became like idols is is this is this part of the the conflict that that gave rise to these people no I I, I don't agree with what you just said about rabbis at all um, but we'll get I'll get to that in a minute. I would well, say like that a rabbi that would throw Spinoza out. So, I mean, some rabbi ex threw Spinoza out of that of that of that group of that congregation, or whatever. That that's what gave him the the right to do that. Well, it wasn't one rabbi. It was a, it was a, a sort of board of rabbis. But let's not get to that yet. Okay. Okay. 
I want to speak to the first part of what you said about what distinguishes Judaism. There are three great contributions that traditional Judaism has made to the history of human thought. The first one is the one that everybody gives Judaism credit for, which is usually referred to as ethical monotheism. So there's one God, and you should be a good person because of that God. That grew out of the Torah, you know, in 500 BC, and Jews get credit for that. Um, and that's the basis of what became Christianity as well. Uh, the second uh, thing that Jews should get credit for, but don't get credit for, but it's just as important, I think, is the idea of portable religion. So, in the in the before before the Torah, before the Israelites, you went to your oracle, your got your your God, and you asked your God for favors, and you promised to be good to that God. But that God was in a certain place, and you had to go to Him. Whereas the Jews created a religion that you could take with you, and you didn't. It didn't. It wasn't located in a single place. God was everywhere, and that that was new too. And then the third thing, which I think speaks to what you're saying, although I'm saying it differently, is that the thing that I find most appealing about Judaism, and and I think I mentioned this in our last podcast, is that there's no pope. Right. There's there's an endless argument. So most of the argument is located in in first there's the Torah, but there's also what's called the oral Torah. And the oral Torah can be almost anything. Uh, it's the basis of it is the 27 volumes of the Talmud, uh, which are divided between the Mishnah, which is the law and the Gomorrah, which is the story. But if you're a learned person you don't have to be a rabbi if you're a learned person and you can find any kind of textual support in the talmud or anything like the talmud it doesn't have to be the talmud it could be some great writer that you argue is writing in this tradition you can argue that the actual words that you're reading in the torah mean exactly the opposite of what they say and no one can ever settle this argument it's like a supreme court where the dissents are just as powerful as the opinion and there's, there's thousands of them. So every once in a while, in a community like the one in, uh, in Amsterdam, I think it was Amsterdam, it might have been a different city, uh, where they are maintaining order, the, Jew, the, 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 the authorities will maintain order. If they have to kick out Spinoza, they will. But Spinoza became very important in Judaism, in Jewish thought, over time. And, uh, and, and there's no one to say that that's not right. There's no one to issue a final ruling. So, um, so Spinoza is, is actually in many sectors of Judaism quite honored now, and in many he's cursed. And why is he cursed and why is he honored? Uh, he's honored for opening Judaism to the modern world, and he's cursed for opening Judaism to the modern world. <laughs> right. And and what is it about the modern world that uh, that people? I mean, you're teaching this course about the modern world, right? It's about Judaism in the modern world. Yeah, although there are people in my course who still live in the ancient world of Judaism, they have they just have adapted their beliefs to make them fit within the modern world. But but there's no, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of beliefs that couldn't really be wider 
it, it's almost, you have to see it in order to believe how wide it is in terms of modern Jewish thought, which is both in some ways ancient, but in some ways modern. I mean, the course I'm teaching goes all the way to the Cone brothers. Um, and it includes, you know, Philip Roth and, and, uh, and Woody Allen, well, actually Woody Allen's not in it, but Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and the Cone brothers. But it also includes the, the a man by the name, I have to read it because I never can remember how to pronounce it properly. A man by the name of uh, Avraham Yitzhak HaKohen Kook, who lived from 1865 to 1935. He was the first uh, chief rabbi of Palestine. And he was the person who decided that the land was holy, but, uh, well, let me put it this way. The, the, until, until Kook, the really religious Jews were extremely anti-Zionist because they thought it was up to God to deliver Jews to the Holy Land, not up to people. And by trying to push this process, you were offending God and you were being anti-Jewish. And this, this first rabbi of Palestine, Rev Kook, he said, actually, the Zionists may be anti-religious themselves and they may not know it, but they're actually part of God's plan. And so we should ally ourselves. We should help them because they're, they are doing the work that, that they're working on behalf of God, even though they don't know it and they would object to this idea. And they are, make, they are helping us to sacralize the land of Israel. Because the original That's Zionists, true. for the people that don't know, the original Zionists were mostly sort of secular socialists. Is that is that accurate? Yes, they were, and they were anti-religious. They wanted right. to remake Jews into these into what most Israelis first generation of became these tough, non-religious sabra types who could farm with one hand and shoot with the other. Um, so Cook uh, was the founder of religious Zionism. And he wasn't, he was a pretty moderate guy. He thought the land was sacred, but he didn't think that it, that it was worth spilling human blood for. Hmm. And his son, when he died, his son took over his movement and his son, uh, the second Rabbi Kook, was the guy who created the Gush Emanim and was a fanatic. And he's the one who, Again, the ex whole ex explain to people listening what the Gushimimim is, because I, I don't think everybody knows. The Gushimimim is it's a it's a translation of block of the faithful, and these are the people who, after the 1967 war, which is about to have its 50th anniversary on June 5th this year, um, decided it was the job of religious Jews to reconquer all of the biblical land of Israel. And they're the ones, they began going to the West Bank and uh, forcing the Israeli government to protect them and creating the settlement movement and getting more and more land and making, becoming more and more powerful. And now they're one of the most powerful forces in the land of Israel. And they're, they're sort of, they've been out of control in my view for quite a while. But they grew out of this original ideology of the first Rev Kook, um, who died in 1935 and was a rather peaceful fellow. In any case, what I'm saying is, is that modern Jewish thought runs the gamut 
from Rev Cook to the Coen brothers. If you see their movie, uh, A Serious Man, it's a actually a serious theological engagement with the ideas of Judaism. And just as uh, Rev Cook was a uh, thoroughly Jewish fellow, so were uh, people like Martin Buber, a Jewish theologian who wrote a famous book called I and Thou, a famous theological treatise. And Martin Buber was completely, he was, he was a Zionist, he lived in Israel, but he, he didn't think that the state should be founded without the, Arab, the local Arabs agreeing to it. And he was very much against the founding of the state when it happened because they couldn't do it peacefully. So um, there's, he was, he's, he, he was, he would be called a non-Zionist. They're also obviously modern anti-Zionists. But he was non-Zionist, but he was still religious, right? I mean, he obviously wrote a book yes, about Martin, God. Yes, Martin Buber was religious, yes. So and, the idea that some people feel that in Israel is like sort of the religious people are the right wing and the non-religious are the left, but there are people that are religious that don't necessarily agree with the with the settlers, right? Those people have by and large disappeared, I would say. Mm. There's a small group of those people, but they're not numerically significant. Mm. Anyway, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that uh, in, in Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and Franz Kafka, you can find traces of Jewish argumentation and Jewish modes of thought, certainly in Freud. Freud became somewhat religious in his later life. Um, but they clearly grew out of the conflict between modern Jewish the modern experience of the Jews and ancient Jewish traditions. And then on top of that, you have to overlay these two enormous historical um, uh, phenomena, which are the Holocaust and the founding of the state of Israel. And and everybody who's a serious Jewish thinker had to deal with those, I mean, who lived through these things, had to deal with the effect of those things, because that sort of changed the way everybody thought about what it meant to be a Jew, one way or another. And, and just to sort of widen the spectrum a little bit, a lot of the people who listen to this and other podcasts on the network are interested in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions. And it is uh, notable that an overwhelmingly high percentage of the sort of American uh, Buddhist uh, teachers are uh, came from Jewish families. Uh, you know, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, uh, Ram Das, Bernie Glassman, um, it's like, it's got to be two thirds or more of them. Uh, is that is that uh, in the same category for you as, as sort of Marx, Marx and Freud and Einstein? Oh, well, I don't I don't know enough about those people. I could talk about Leonard Cohen that way. OK, Leonard, Leonard Cohen is was never, never. He never uh, felt he was always a Jew by personhood and by religion. He always said, I have a perfectly good religion. I don't need to find another one. And yet he lived uh, in a monastery for, was it eight years? Yeah. And put himself in the service of this monk. And then he and then he went to somewhere. He left and he, and he lived in another place uh, doing similar things. I don't remember the details of that one. Um, and because uh, Leonard Cohen, I think also to some degree, uh, although I'm not as familiar, I guess you are, with Allen Ginsberg, they both found uh, a kind of um, nexus between 
uh, Jewish belief and various Eastern mystical beliefs. The the Jewbu yeah, notion. Correct. Um, now there's also a very important Jewish mystical strain um, in the Zohar, uh, where um, you know that's been adopted by a lot of uh, non-Jews like Madonna and so forth. You know the red yeah. people who the red thing. And uh, actually, I've always been kind of curious why Jewish people who are mystically inclined than Jews did not spend more time studying that because I think that that like it's an incredibly rich um, it's, it's it, to me it's I don't as you know as I said before I don't I don't really have a mystical bone in my body but I do find it intellectually fascinating and and there's an enormous uh, riches of writing there and I think a lot of the mystical writings uh, I don't know I mean, I don't know enough about Eastern mysticism. I so think what I think what happened, sort of, to the baby boom generation people who turned to Eastern religions. One of the one of the reasons they were attracted to those traditions were precisely because it was not the tradition of their parents or grandparents, and so it didn't have any of the baggage of the way they grew up, and they could just see the see the intellectual and spiritual tradition uh, separate and apart from you know, childhood issues uh, that 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 that. So I, I and then other people gravitated towards K Kabbalah and other mystical right. traditions because they felt it was a way of integrating the, 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 the way they grew up and 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 a yearning for this uh, my mystical thing. But but I think a lot of people, uh, you, you know, uh, I a friend of mine who's been on this podcast, David Nickturn, you know, teaches, uh, is a Buddhist teacher. And he says in Japan, um, you know, a lot of young Japanese uh, want to study anything except Buddhism because it's, uh, they associate it with the way they grew up, their parents and grandparents. So I, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Although um, I would say there's also a, uh, there's really a tradition of secular, people who are raised as secular Jews embracing these Jewish mystical traditions of late, I think the numbers are significant. People, you know, the the, the poster boy for this is Matis Yahoo. Yeah, but um, there are I, I'm constantly meeting, particularly in Israel, uh, people who have found them. You know, people who a generation earlier would have done what you're talking about, but have actually returned to a much more uh, uh, to a much a much more enclosed Jewish world through. Uh, these these mystical aspects of Judaism. So well, this is what I mean. The last thing I want to say about it is that is that the thing you know since I started studying Judaism in a semi serious way maybe ten years ago or twelve years ago, I found that there's a whole universe there and there's there's no way really to define it. There's there's nothing you can't say that this is Jewish this is not Jewish or this is Jewish about most things. Mm. There's very few things that you can't fit into this universe, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Well, you know, it's like the hippies, like we always say, it's all one. Uh, what? Um... No, but that's the great thing about Judaism. It's not one. It's 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 actually infinite. It's, but it's definitely not one. The, 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 well, the mono, the... monotheism, the mono means one, doesn't it? Well, no, I guess it's it's the the slogan of the United Jewish 
communities used to be called the UJA, the YouTube people, is we are one. And I am a fanatic on the argument we are not one. <laughs> we are many, and yeah. we are endlessly arguing. We are nothing but conflict, internal conflict for uh, many, many centuries. And that's what's so great about it, that it's a, it's a conflict, and it's a conflict that's based on intellectual argument. You win by having the better argument, and and nobody gets to decide that somebody's the winner merely on the basis of arbitrary authority. That's the difference between rabbis and priests, by the way. Rabbis are just learned men. They have no particular hotline to God. They're, your relationship to God, whatever you define God to be, is between you and God. The rabbi does not. He, he's not an intermediary, the way he, the way a priest is. Well, then, how could they throw Spinoza out? They threw him out of the community. Right. But they, they, that's because they ran that particular community. They were, the, they were like, you know, right. they were like the mayor of the city. Right. But they, they the, the, you know, a different rabbi somewhere else would say, no, Spinoza's a great Jew, and there would be no way to settle that. So among modern thinkers, um, since you're teaching a course about about the modern world, who, who are the modern thinkers that you're the most uh, impressed with? People who are alive today in this, alive uh, in this ballpark. Yeah, alive today. Um, well, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to the, the inheritors of the Frankfurt School. The people in the Frankfurt School are not quite alive today, with one exception. Right. Although, well, don't yeah, it, explain what the Frankfurt School is. Yeah, I'm about with. to. The Frankfurt School were these Germans uh, who all left right before World War II. Most of them came to the United States. And they were thinkers, they were Marxists, who came up with the idea of sort of consciousness control and thought control and how you rulers rule um by nonviolent means, by creating consensus in their communities that are advantageous to the rulers themselves. Um, the, uh, the main thinkers were Theodore Adorno, uh, Max Horkheimer, um, and Walter Benjamin. Those are the three people that I taught in this class. And, uh, and, the, and the, the, the next generation, um, the, the last great Frank, Frankfurt School thinker is a man I admire a great deal. I've met him once or twice, Jürgen Habermas, who uh, is in Germany. And he's considered the great social democratic theorist uh, of liberalism today. And he's studied uh, very actively in universities today. And he's, uh, he, he's, I guess his star has dimmed a little bit because he's very much associated with the European community. But... He's he's one of the great theorists of democracy, and he is um, he's he's considered. He, he talks about the, the necessary means of social democracy uh, through through um, through through collective space, like places where people can meet and speak about their values, and also organizations like NGOs and so forth that where uh, civil uh, discourse can take place. Um, so I like those guys because they help me understand the world I live in very well. Um, 
the modern Jewish thinkers like the authors of this uh, textbook I'm using called Makers of Modern Jew uh, Makers of Jewish Modernity that I most admire today are the novelists like Saul Bellow who died uh, a few 19 uh, recently I guess in 2006 Philip Roth um, and uh, and other Jewish writers who are grappling with sort of the details of everyday life. There are no great, I would say there are no great Jewish theorists living today. That that moment is over because it's, like I said, it grew out of this conflict, which took place in the mid 19th century. And it's kind of played out now. Jews have become, at least in America, like everybody else. You know, there's nothing particularly distinctive about being Jewish in America anymore because um, America has, has become a nation of various communities that, you know, it can be Jewish, you can be Asian. I always, uh, I've always been fascinated by the difference. America embraced both Woody Allen and Larry David as entertainers, but Woody Allen was embraced because he was bringing this, uh, he was embraced for his Jewishness. That was very exciting in the 1970s that this Jewish slamiel was a sex symbol. Larry David is Jewish, but he, he could be anything. He's his Jewishness is just another way of being American. Well, but and he comments on Judaism a lot over the course of the show. He seems to have a lot of anger towards Orthodox Jews. That's an ongoing theme. Right, but the show is not for Jews. The show is the the the, the non-Jews who watch that show just see Judaism, just see these as kind of jokes about a certain people. There's nothing there's there's nothing threatening or new about it. It's it's just Jews are just completely accepted. It's like Larry David and that guy, I can't pronounce his name, Asnar, you know what I mean? The guy who's got his own he's got that uh he used to be on uh used to be on the office or, or parks and recreation. Oh and yeah, uh, Aziz Ansari. Right, that guy. They're they're kind of Equivalence. One is Indian, one is Jewish, or Mindy. I love Mindy. And Mindy makes fun of her Indian background. She dresses really sillily. Her parents are kind of comical. The same way Larry David makes fun of his background. It's just everybody's got a background. Whereas Jews used to be a big problem. And they they couldn't, they, they weren't allowed to, to be Jewish. Uh, they weren't allowed to be both Jewish and whatever they were. They had to choose. Now you no longer have to choose. And that path was plowed by people like Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and Woody Allen. And now this battle has been won. And where does Bob Dylan fit into this? Well, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Bob Dylan is a, is a, uh, he's a non-Jewish Jew. Uh, he was brought up very much in the bosom of the Jewish community in Hibbing, Minnesota. He went to Jewish summer camp. He was bar mitzvahed. And then he embraced uh, this mythical American persona. You know, he made up that he had been a hobo and mm -hmm. came from the West and so forth, created a new name for himself. Um, and yet his, his, uh, his art is very much tinged with, uh, with the Bible with, and with the Torah. Mm -hmm. And you can see also some of it in, in the cadences. So he has this, I mean, Bob Dylan is kind of a miracle given how much of this knowledge he imbibed and can translate into uh, his lyrics. I, I don't know when he had time to learn it all. 
Um, Robbie Robertson talks about this in his memoir that it just amazed at Bob Dylan's store of knowledge. Um, and and it and it and this is it's kind of it's almost Jungian, in that it he he has this he's, it's like the collective unconscious is speaking through Dylan's poetry, but it's 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 at least partially I would say significantly a Jewish collective unconscious. Okay, and and uh, so now with all of this. Um study that you do obviously you're you're professionally best known as a liberal columnist and writer and uh you know we have a moment in america where um you know very powerful jewish advisor to the president of the united states um how do you see jared kushner as part of this uh tapestry How do I see Jared Kushner as part of this tapestry? I, 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 I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't think about Jared Kushner. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I appreciate very much your sharing this with me and the people listening to this. Um, uh, anything uh, that you would recommend people watch, listen to, or read besides the things that you've mentioned, the Coen Brothers film and the work of Leonard Cohen? Uh, well, I, I think the richest arguments about Judaism uh, can be found in Philip Roth's work. Mm. And I would recommend two books in particular on this point. One is my favorite book of Roth, uh, in my favorite modern novel, period, which is Counter Life. And the other one is the book, um, um, what's it called? The one where he goes to Israel and there's a fake Philip Roth. Diana, do you remember? Operation Shylock, where he he has these fantastic inner dialogues uh, between different arguments about Judaism and Zionism that that he makes better arguments, both anti-Zionist and uh, anti-Jewish, than the people who believe them make them. Uh, so I think those two are incredibly rich ways to enter into this discourse. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you.